You're listening to a Melbourne Conversations podcast. Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Bunwurrung and Woiwurrung, Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. I'd also like to acknowledge that in any discussion of housing inequality in Australia, um, we have to take into account the ways in which First Nations peoples in this country are disproportionately affected uh, by many of the issues that we'll be discussing today. So I'm going to introduce you to our panel in just a little bit. Um, but before that, actually quite a few things before I do that. Um, if you haven't noticed already, we have an Auslan interpreter, actually two, booked for this evening. Um, I'm not sure um, where our, our audience members are that um, need to be able to access the um, Auslan interpretation, but um, we would like to prioritise seating for them, so um, just be mindful of that. Toilets are out that way and to the right there are some signs to guide you um, if you get lost. Um, yeah, we're going to talk, uh, the panel event's going to be for about 30 or 40 minutes, but before that, um, we have a short presentation about the um, draft affordable housing strategy that was released just um, a few hours ago, um, and we're going to hear from Bridie Alanadale, who is, the senior, sorry, who is a senior policy advisor at City of Melbourne um, and project lead on the affordable housing strategy. So I'll hand over to Bridie now. Well, thank you, Sarah, for that introduction, and thank you to Melbourne Conversations for hosting this discussion on such an important topic. My name is Bridie Allenadale, and I am the project lead on the draft affordable housing strategy at the City of Melbourne. These forums are important avenues to discuss really important and serious issues that face our society, and most importantly, to discuss the range of possible solutions. The affordable housing crisis is definitely one of these serious issues. It's been on the Council's radar for quite some time. At the start of last year, we wanted to understand the extent of the affordable housing crisis in Melbourne, in the City of Melbourne. So we engaged SGS Economics and determined that we currently have a shortfall of around 5,500 affordable homes in the City of Melbourne. If nothing is done, the status quo, and the status quo remains, and there is no intervention, we expect this gap in supply will increase to 23,000 by the year 2036. So there you see the supply at 3,900 at the moment, and the need of 9,000, and then the increase to 27,000 in the year 2036. So the City of Melbourne is a player in the solution to addressing the crisis, albeit a smaller player compared to the state and federal governments. In our draft affordable housing strategy, we have outlined what we think we could do to address the crisis. The draft strategy is being taken to our councillors for endorsement on Tuesday. This strategy, which is not yet endorsed, outlines four priority areas that we think we can take action on the housing crisis. So here they are. The first one is advocating for mandatory inclusionary zoning. 
It's a very wordy way of saying that we want to be able to require developers to include a percentage of affordable housing in their developments, in new developments. The second one's around using our own land to develop affordable housing. The third is about strengthening our own internal capacity to be able to manage and negotiate affordable housing outcomes. And the fourth, and most importantly, is about advocating and partnering with state government, federal government and other key stakeholders to deliver more affordable housing. As I said, this is not yet endorsed by our councillors. If it is endorsed on Tuesday, we will commence our public consultation on Wednesday, and that will run for a month. We are keen to hear your thoughts on the affordable housing strategy, especially uh, the positive ones, but good, bad, indifferent, we want to hear all thoughts and views on the topic and on what we think um, the priorities could be for affordable housing in the City of Melbourne. So please visit our Participate Melbourne website um, as from next Wednesday, or come and talk to our friendly team who are at the back right now and we'll stick around to talk to you guys um, about the affordable housing strategy. And we can get your name down on a list and email you out a link to the survey and to the draft strategy when it's released for public consultation on Wednesday. And now I will join you in sitting back and listening to the lively discussion on affordable housing with this pretty incredible panel. Thank you. Thanks, Bridie, uh, for that presentation. Um, and welcome again for anyone who's just joined us uh, to this Melbourne Conversations event on affordable housing. Um, so I'm going to introduce you to um, our speakers. Uh, we have three really wonderful speakers tonight. Um, sitting next to me here is Timmer Ball, uh, a freelance non-fiction writer, researcher and creative practitioner of Baladong Noongar Heritage. In 2018, she co-created Wild Tongue Zine for Next Wave Festival with Aja Kupinska, uh, which interrogated labour inequity across the arts industry and has continued to investigate the links between gentrification, racial inequality and housing affordability in several projects. In 2016, she won the Westerly magazine Patricia Hackett Prize and her writing has appeared in a range of anthologies and literary journals. Uh, next, we have Dr Heather Holst, the Commissioner for Residential Tenancies for Victoria. Before taking up her role as Commissioner, Heather was Deputy CEO of Launch Housing following the merger of Homeground and Hanover in 2015 when she was CEO of Homeground. Heather's experience spans homelessness services, housing management, tenant advice, policy and research in both non-profits and government since 1989. Heather has contributed to key innovations, including as designer of home ground real estate. Heather is adjunct lecturer in history at the Uni University of New South Wales and a board member of the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness. Uh, 
and sitting at the end. Um, Innocent Karabagega is a law student, student ambassador and community advocate with a great ambition to give back to Australia, the country that he's called home since moving here from Burundi in 2010. As a former refugee, Innocent works to educate Australian youth about the experience of being a refugee. He's also working towards his goal of setting up medical centres in Burundi for persons with HIV and to work for the UN as a human rights lawyer. So today's discussion, um, as you know, it's all about affordable housing. Um, and also, as we now know, the City of Melbourne's draft affordable housing strategy was um, uh, released earlier today. Well, nearly. Um, and soon will be up for community engagement. And um, the four of us sitting up here have really only had uh, a few hours to look over it. So this discussion, just to be clear, will not be uh, an in-depth review <laughs> Um, of that document. Um, I encourage you all, um, when you can, to read, read over it in your own time and have your say online via the Participate Melbourne website that Bridie alluded to before. Um, but for the next um, 30 or 40 minutes, um, we'll more so be using um, that strategy as a launching point for discussion. Um, we'll touch on some of the key points and the priorities that um, Bridie mentioned. Uh, and we'll talk about affordable housing and housing inequality more broadly in Australia. Um, I wanted to start with a fairly large question for all of you, I'll say. <laughs> um, when, we, when we talk about housing affordability and indeed affordable housing, um, we can't talk about it in a vacuum. Uh, having spoken to all of you briefly before the event, I, I think it's safe for me to say that um, we all agree um, that housing inequality is reflective of um, numerous other issues and injustices. Um, and I wondered if each of you could talk briefly about the broader effects of um, the deepening housing inequality, which is kind of a way of asking, why do you think we should care about affordable housing? Okay, I'll start. I also want to acknowledge that we're gathered here on Wurundjeri Bunurong land and pay respect to Elders past, present and future and any Aboriginal people who happen to be here this evening. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a human right to be able to live safely in a home and it just seems like such an urgent thing for us to all think about. I think almost the challenge is... The fact that, to a certain extent, it's really challenging to even accept that we're at this point, that so many people don't have access to safe, long-term, affordable housing, and you kind of sort of think w with sort of a country that has an enormous amount of wealth and privileges for certain aspects or dimensions of that country, like, why isn't that wealth and equity, equity being shared and sort of how did we almost get here in the first place? But I guess in terms of moving forward, it just sort of seems like something that, you know, is really great that councils are starting to prioritise it and moving towards developing their own strategies and not necessarily waiting for other levels of government to deliver it. So I think that's just a reflection of the fact that people are really willing to jump in to this kind of urgent moment we're in and I think we'll see more and more um, councils and probably smaller not-for-profits starting to think about what they can do rather than waiting 
for the broader, bigger systems. So, Absolutely. yeah. Heather? Yeah. Um, well, I think housing uh, a home is, is a sort of fundamental for all of us. And um, uh, one of the difficulties with it as a, a sort of an area of public policy is that it's almost invisible if you're well housed and the people you know are well housed. It's, it's like being able to turn on the tap and have clean drinking water. Um, but it's, it's all too apparent um, if you're on the edge of that. Um, so I suppose the reason I got so interested, uh, you know, all those years ago was that I had a, a bad tenancy experience um, and, you know, went off to the tenants' union, got it sorted out and then volunteered there and, you know, sort of really got stuck into this interest in housing and how fundamental it is to all of us. Um, so it's always been a curiosity to me that it isn't uh, a bigger issue and unfortunately I think it's, you know, as, as previous people have alluded to, it's becoming a bigger issue because more, more and more people are getting into strife, uh, more and more difficulty from the extremely apparent rough sleeping that the City of Melbourne um, has um, to people not sure when they're going to get a, an unnoticed to vacate from their rental property um, for, the re for a reason they're not sure of or, you know, timing they don't know. So um, it, I, I would argue that it's absolutely a platform for our lives, um, for all of us, and, um, you know, Australia has solved this before, but it did have to get into quite a bad way before, um, you know, that, that was done, and I hope we don't have to, to keep sort of going down before uh, real action gets taken. Mm. Thank you. Um, allow me to say hello and uh, share my view with you um, this evening on this particular topic on affordable housing and what it means to people like me. Um, sharing with you a bit of my story when I came to Australia 2012 in December, um, I was the first person in my family history to migrate to Australia. I was at age 20. I didn't have a grandmother, I didn't have a grandfather, I didn't have an aunt, and part of my studies as well in Africa, we have been, been taught about Australia, been taught Oceania. Um, I haven't rented a house in Africa. I was in refugee camp, uh, and uh, after the refugee camp, I was taken to rehabilitation center when I was discharged from the hospital. I arrived here and lived in a uh, um, temporary accommodation offered by immigration for a few months. And later I was told after three months uh, that I have to look for my own home where I'll be permanently stay and join the community. To me, um, my expectation coming to Australia because of uh, what I've been told as many other migrants from diverse countries, uh, it was a very positive story. In Australia, everything will be success. But for me, uh, it was quite difficult. Number one, to, uh, I didn't understand what meant tenancy agreement, uh, what would be my rights and my responsibility towards the home of someone. And English was my fourth language at the time, and this time it's the fifth language. Um, I couldn't understand what I would do in the house. So it, was, it took too much time to get a home. And uh, once I got home, I was not able to pay at the same time because as I talk at the time, I was given uh, by government uh, some uh, youth allowance. It was a youth allowance when I divide what I put into the rent and to go to university and live at my own. It was not possible. So I went through what called um, 
each and every day counting whether I should live on the street or um, uh, leave school, go to work. And it's not a unique story because today with my experience living in Australia, I've seen my friends at university who are not able to leave their parents' home because housing, it's, a, it's an issue to us, especially us who are trying to do well into the society. To many migrants like me, uh, we need, we ask the government if possible, especially in the Department of Immigration. Day one, when we interacted with Australia, we interacted with Australia through immigration. They know us how much we, came, we brought into this country. Myself, don't look at me today, I came with hand empty. I didn't have a pair of shoes. I didn't have slippers. All I have today is through acknowledgement of the loving Australians who are here present today. But um, immigration should have taken responsibility towards people like me, and there are so many around our communities. We need, when we, they offer a visa to someone, to access properly the needs. Each case is different. Like mine, I came with no one into, into this country, and interacting with NGOs, or a non-profit organization, they helped me. I will ask maybe the government to put more money into uh, in the services, into immigration, into non-profit organizations so that people like me who don't have families can be helped and they can have someone to help. Uh, English was uh, not easy for me to understand and to be able to seek assistance alone. There are so many opportunities, but from the airport, when they told you that you have to draft a CV, that to go look for a job, and from the airport, from a Taramarine airport, which contract, which uh, work experience did I have in Australia? Only was from Dubai, flying to, Nairo, to Dubai to Melbourne. That was my experience, the first time in a plane. But uh, looking for employment, I was asked to draft uh, a CV. I didn't understand what the CV means. And that was the main barrier for me to have a job at the first stage. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Innocent. Um, really grateful for you sharing your story of arriving in Australia. Um, what, I mean, what do you think was the biggest challenge in terms of um, finding housing uh, in the first few years that you were here? I think I didn't get quite to there. The, well, the question, may I ask you if you can repeat the question for me, please? In, when you first arrived um, in Australia, what was the biggest challenge uh, in finding accommodation, in finding housing? Um, the biggest challenge was the income I was given by government. I was rejected by many houses, and those houses I was applying using a, a caseworker um, she did an incredible job to me with her organization at the time, Hope Foundation. They helped me so much. But the issue was the money I was given and the rental property uh, rate, and they were looking at, we cannot give you a home because you are by yourself. If we give you this room, it means you are not going to eat. And at the time I was looking to enroll myself at university. Then they look at the cost of uh, public transport, food, and rent, um, internet was not part of my life back then. I didn't understand, uh, I didn't know internet. It wasn't ever been part of my life in Africa. Um, even the house has internet, and then I was to pay the water, electricity, 
the man I was given, in fact, was not to look after me, was to pay those services. Then the question was, did the government allow me to come when they expected me to pay rent, no eating? Uh, that's where begging starts from. And when I'm hungry, as I was a normal survivor used to survive in a refugee camp, I was to knock to doors, make sure I ask the neighbors at the university, where do I find food? Because all my money I had put into rent, water, electricity, and the public transport. In Africa, we were running, we were going to buy food, but here I found no one was going to buy food. I found that I have to pay public transport. Then my money is finished before even the money comes back. Thank you. I want to talk about um, home ownership. Um, I know that's not explicitly what, what we're here to discuss, but it is something that um, you know, is obviously a massive part of this equation. Um, and in Australia, I think there's something that's viewed um, you know, as a good vehicle for investment, um, but a virtuous pursuit. I don't know if anyone here saw the 7.30 report recently on, on housing. I, the, the bit that I remember the most is when um, Brian White of Ray White um, Real Estate, he said that um, owning a home is a source of bonding and connection for families. I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, talks, talks of housing affordability often uh, speak of lowering prices in the private market um, because home ownership is seen um, as the most stable form of housing um, available, available today. So I want to ask of the three of you, um, do you think that the conversation needs to shift um, to be about long-term housing um, outside of the private market? Um, and how much will new pathways to home ownership um, really help people? Um, my, my work now is, is in renting, um, and I'm really interested in getting renting on much fairer terms so that the push factors into home ownership uh, aren't as strong. Um, it's, um, it is, I mean, Brian White's right, <laughs> you know, it is more stable because uh, it's, it's... Oh, he didn't say that. Oh, yeah. you did. He did uh, about families. <laughs> families, right, right, yeah. Well, you do want to know that you can put your child into a school and that they won't have to shift two or three times, that, you know, yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I think there's a, a really, a lot of work to do to make the... Um, arrangements fairer for people who are renting, and more and more people are. Um, they're renting, um, you know, all sorts of households are renting as well. It's not just students or, you know, or, you know newly arrived people like, like Innocent's talking about um, that then quite rapidly go into home ownership. Um, it is a, an enduring type of um, tenure, and it needs to be uh, on fair, fair terms. Um, we also need to think uh, about how to get social housing bigger in Australia because our population has grown a lot. Uh, our public and uh, community housing hardly at all. Um, so even you know the proportions that were there aren't, aren't there anymore. Um, so obviously a lot of energy needs to go into renting. I think both both private and social um, for it to be on the terms that don't make home ownership the one and only way, and therefore give it a price point that takes it away from so many people's possibilities. Just quickly before you pass the mic, um, is in your experience, you know, a lot of your job is, um, you know, advocating for renters and, and sort of um, uh, bridging that gap um, of people who rent homes um, and being a voice for them. How many, I guess, 
How pervasive do you think is that mindset that that you're renting um, as a pathway to ownership, or like that the ultimate goal is to own your home? Like, how many people sort of feel like that in your experience? Um, I think a lot of people still hope for that. Um, I think more and more people are understanding that's not in the in the near future. <laughs> Um, I think it's um, really solidly embedded in policy making, though. Um, I mean, there's just been some stuff about, you know, a aged incomes, um, and the assumption is that the pension will be adequate because you don't have any substantial housing costs, apart from perhaps a bit of repair. Um, and, in fact, you might be able to draw down on what you've paid into your home uh, to supplement. Um, but, you know, for, for less people, is that the case? So I, I think the, um, the old settings in Australia in terms of policy making in all sorts of domains, not purely in, in housing, need to rethink um, those underpinning assumptions. Mm. Tima, do you have any thoughts? Sure, no, I mean, I strongly really believe that sort of moving towards renting and sort of understanding that, and I think that really comes down to almost the challenge of the concept of ownership and a home equals ownership in a colonised country is really challenging. And I think... But I think ownership and home ownership is so explicitly embedded in the idea of colonisation and the idea of kind of, like, possessing a space in a country. So it's really hard to shift away from that mindset as a nation that has and still is struggling to come to terms with everything that has happened. And I think it is really hard. Like, I actually unfortunately missed the recent 7.30 report on housing, but they did another one a couple of years ago. And I thought that was really fascinating because it sort of talks what this sort of shift in mindset in ownership versus renting and the sort of almost prejudice and the most fragility that I think a lot of people associate with renting, and these are obviously more middle-class, mobile people with privilege. I mean, obviously, there's other people who never think about ownership. But anyway, in this, I think it was 2017 or maybe 16, there was a 7.30 report special, and it was more focused on Sydney. And they had this amazing kind of case study on a family. So it was a Sydney family, um, I guess, um, baby boomers sort of in their 60s. They had this, like, lovely home, and they're millennial kids couldn't afford housing so one um i don't know the woman and her partner were living in her parents sort of like converted shed and they were present it was presented at this tragedy like oh my gosh this young white couple i don't know in their late 20s early 30s they're living in their parents shed this is horrific as a nation how can we let this be happening and he just sort of thought They've made the shed beautiful. Like, it's this, they've made this really beautiful space. They're living in any inner city Sydney. They've got family support. They had their independence in their converted sort of shed house in the backyard. Never had to worry about eviction because their parents owned a home. There was this, like, sort of beautiful sort of sense of family connection by having the privacy of their space. But then once a week, they would join their parents for dinner and, yeah, I was just horrified that it was presented as a tragedy because I was like, this should be celebrated. We should be encourage everyone who has the privilege of owning a huge home in inner city Sydney or Melbourne to build, to like, a smaller... It. Yeah, to share it and build a smaller home for their, you know, troubled, like, just 
disadvantaged millennial kids, which was just hilarious that they were depicted as disadvantaged. And, yeah, it just sort of makes me angry that the people in power seem to be completely remiss of what someone like Innocent has had to go through and is so humble and generous in offering his story. And yet we kind of present this image of this sort of, I don't know, late 20, early 30 young professional couple as like a horror show that they can't get into the Sydney market when to me it was like seriously like the garage conversion it was awesome it just looks like a really cool little apartment and people are doing cool things with their garages exactly like (laughs) encourage that and sort of celebrate it rather than kind of seeing it as this sort of oh no we're in a crisis Mm. I mean you know obviously it's a reflective of the fact that we need to change our thinking and our mindset But, yeah, it's, yeah, I guess just echoing the sort of need to sort of reshift ownership. I think ownership for a lot of people, yeah, has some really challenging connotations, I think. And, yeah, there's there's just so many other possibilities. Innocent, um, I I believe it's something that you've spoken about in the past, um, home ownership um, for someone like yourself, a former refugee. The the difference, I, I guess... Um, is it a, a sign of stability or, um, I guess, as opposed to the renting situations um, that you may have had? Like, how important is home ownership to you? Um, given my history of the country and the family where I lived, um, I was born in a family, a place called my, uh, my mom, dad. And I was to finish university and start my own life uh, and from my mom and dad. And that's my best wishes to my children. However, now I'm migrant here in Australia, uh, with a young couple, it's quite difficult. When uh, uh, I come here, decide to own a home at the first stage of my life, means I don't have to go to school. Um, then I have to go to work to pay the mortgage off, which is a major situation to many African families, and may I believe other communities and I don't understand. It's the same issue. Um, home is essential for everyone, but there is factors you must consider before you own a home. Um, number one, in my view, uh, are you in a uh, stable relationship with your partner? When you look at the crisis we have around the families, it's easy to lose a home when you are not in a stable relationship with your partner. Two, do you have a secure job? Um, because there are so many people stressed and I don't understand who gave them those mortgages. Three, um, if you take mortgage at the early stage, is it the best option for the children if you have children? Um, there are so many now around those backgrounds, uh, things to consider. Then um, it's a question to Australians, uh, renters, banks, and the government, why a poor person like me can be given uh, a mortgage with money and without calculating well whether the next, it's a mortgage for 30 years. Maybe I can prove I have a capacity to pay three years or five years. How about in the next 25 years? That's impact to the children. Um, if we can observe that more into details. There are more children around schools. As a public speaker, when around, I traveled around Victoria, I was shocked to seeing children being stressed in Australia. I thought it was... Um, supposed to be in a refugee camp. I didn't know in Australia exists like that. And there's so many children who don't pack proper food going to school because the parents have put every dollar 
into the mortgage. So I, will, I encourage people who can afford to pay their own mortgages. I encourage people who can afford to stop, but at the same time, the lenders not to take advantage of people who don't understand. Emotionally, from Africa, speaking French, I will take a mortgage. But when you look at my finance, I don't believe I, I, I'm capable of paying off the mortgage with the child care behind us. So if there's other people uh, in my situation, um, I believe the banks, we should be looked after by the government and we should, the contracts here, when you look at the contract and the agreements, many, including myself at, from law school, I still don't understand well the contract law. It's a complex. We go to court to the bank, they print out all those forms. You can sign a contract of a half a million within an hour. Have you gone through all those terms and the condition? In my view, I don't understand. Thank you. Thank you, Anisim. Um, one of the uh, key points in the um, draft affordable housing strategy, um, I don't remember the exact wording, but was around um, affordable housing as essential infrastructure. Um, I wondered if we could talk about that um, possibility for a little bit um, and your thoughts on that. Um, it is an attempt to reframe um, the, the, the debate, I suppose, and the thinking. Um, and, you know, it, it's clearly true. If there isn't uh, an amount of affordable housing in a location, there's a whole lot of people who aren't able to live there or are going to be extremely stressed in, in living there. So it does make uh, an area poorer, <laughs> if that's the situation. Um, so, and I think it's also uh, an attempt to sort of frame it in a way that draws in the national level of government in, in a sort of more wholehearted um, way. Um, so so I, I suppose I think of it as um, fairly, fairly obvious, you know, that, that affordable housing uh, is essential infrastructure. Um, but I, I think it's mainly spoken about in those terms to try to explain it uh, to people who, who don't really think of it you know, like that, that they think of it as just a private commodity that you either uh, able to buy enough of or not, you know, um, whereas it has to shift across from that space because that sort of thinking is, is how we've got so far where we are now. Um, another thing, I know I said we wouldn't go through it point by point, but now I'm thinking about those points, having just seen them uh, up on the projection. Um, one of the other points was about um, inclusionary zoning. Um, and I wondered, uh, mandatory inclusionary zoning, I should say, which is very different to voluntary inclusionary zoning. Um, I wondered if you had, um, if, 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 if you had any, any thoughts on, I guess, um, I guess how effective um, or important that is. Um, I know it's been, it's, it's been touched on in the past in South Australia, in um, New South Wales and in the ACT to an extent, um, but Australia doesn't have a massive history of inclusionary zoning. So, um, yeah, I wondered if you had any opinions on that point. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll start. Um, yeah, I think it will help. I think um, if it's properly done, um, where the definition of affordable housing is proper, properly made, so that there's no kind of slippy slidey, what we mean by affordable housing is, you know, something too expensive. Um, what we mean by affordable housing is, you know, a certain number of below market 
things that can be bought. You know, it has to, it has to be affordable rental by, um, you know, well-defined definitions, which I believe there's work going on with that. Um, it's produced housing in South Australia uh, that I know of. Um, I don't know much about the ACT situation, I have to confess, um, but it's produced a lot of housing in the UK as well. Um, so it has to be part of it. No one thing will do it, um, but, it, but it, it's part of it. Uh, and then if it's made sure that it's kept, it's not just there for a few years and then, you know, it, it dissipates, that's also very important. The way that it's managed is extremely important because otherwise that could be, you know, not okay for people. So th there's a bit in it. Um, and, you know, I think that it also needs to be done across a whole jurisdiction. It's great that the local governments are leading the push, but it would be... And it, it might be possible... Uh, for the City of Melbourne more than it might be for other areas. But I think if it was also the City of Yarra and the City of Port Phillip and Stonington and so on, all the, you know, so that you don't just have to nip over the border and you don't have to do that. So I think, I think across, uh, across Victoria is, is what's required. Um, but it has to be really firmly done and then they'll have to hold to it as well because there'll be um, pushbacks on it and it has to be given a while to see how well it can work. But evidence from other places, and I don't know why Victoria would be different, is, is that it can work. Timmy, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it is really essential to, um, yeah, move to sort of almost that mandatory aspect of it to ensure that property developers and development is always including affordable units in any development would certainly help and remove those sort of barriers between who can get in and out of housing. And I think, yeah, I think it's sort of like moving into also having those sort of almost more difficult conversations of, because it's such a economic-driven industry from the private sector, kind of ensuring that, you know, affordable housing is of still of a certain quality and there's not this massive disparity in development between what the affordable units versus the more market-priced units look like and then even sort of moving beyond that, trying to also somehow legislate or through policy really think more about rent control and rent regulation too. So it's not just that first step of, yeah, we delivered three affordable units because we had to, but what are the mechanisms to ensure that all the affordable housing is protected for the next 500 years of renters. And I think, yeah, rent control and rent regulation, to just know that you can rent a house and know that it's just not... The rent isn't going to continually increase all the time and that you're protected because we all know that wages don't often increase and people lose their jobs and those are the conditions that see people then moving into a housing crisis, if not in the worst-case scenario, a homelessness situation. Um, Heather, how does, just speaking of rent control, um, is, is that something that comes up in your work as Commissioner? And I wondered if you had any, any thoughts on that in the context of Australia and, and Melbourne. It was really interesting that it didn't get in the, um, the reforms. Uh, so um, I think there were a few submissions about it, but not even most of the advocates in Victoria were willing to put that forward because it seems such a fast step um, from where we are. Where it did get in, uh, in a little way, is in the longer leases. People might be aware that you can now take out a, a longer or ask for a longer-term lease than the six or 12 months that have been quite normal. Um, and there is 
within those longer leases um, notification of when the rents uh, are going to be increased and by what percent, if they're going to be increased. So that's the closest this tranche of reforms has got to anything like that sort of transparency around rents in the private market. And that's why one of the great attractions for social housing is that uh, people know that the rents will be um, connected to their actual incomes. It's one of the big attractions. Um, very uh, successful um, com uh, countries like, you know, Germany, uh, Berlin, you know, they do, they do have controlled rents. Um, but I think, uh, and I think it is something that we will probably have to turn our minds to, particularly in those sort of hot uh, markets um, like the capital cities of Australia um, sooner or later. Um, but I'm pleased that some of the other measures like minimum standards and more certainty about uh, evictions not being, you know, able to be done as, as readily or as for as many reasons, uh, I think they'll need to be embedded and then it'll be interesting to see, you know, what's left over and I suspect that will be one of them. Mm. Rent controls, one of the ways that, um, you know, I think it got, the government can take responsibility for um, housing affordability. I wanted to ask about... Um, Public housing, I think there's probably a lot of people in the room who could keep me honest on this, but I believe Victoria has the um, lowest rate of public housing in Australia. I think it's 3% of housing stock. Feel free to yell out if I'm wildly wrong. Um, but I, I wondered where, where public housing fits into the picture. I could talk all night, so I'll just say that. <laughs> uh, look, it's essential. It's, it's really important. Um, uh, and it's really important because of the, the no discrimination access, because of the um, uh, predictable rents, um, because of the way that it's managed, um, and the long tenure. You, you, as long as you pay your rent and don't uh, cause major disturbances, uh, you can stay in public housing. So some of those qualities give us massive hints about what we've got to do, <laughs> you know, to the rest of the sector. But the, but. Don't, don't underestimate that no discrimination access. That's actually hugely important for people. Um, so, and there are, there are some people who are going to need, uh, you know, a bit of forgiveness at times when, when they become ill or other circumstances happen, and public housing is the place that that can much more readily happen. So um, I think we need, uh, we need more and we need that to be part of plans, um, as well as other, th other measures like mandatory inclusionary zoning and um, residential tenancies law reform, um, services for homelessness that um, Innocent calls out. So all of these measures need to be thought of and uh, matched to, to the real needs in the communities and, um, uh, you know, done as an integrated um, set of measures. Go on, Innocent. Um, I'll try to link up with the the topic with the current issues we have inside of our communities. Um, inside of African communities, when we gather together and we try to see what is going on here, the main issue we have is employment. We love to put our own children in our own home, like everybody. I believe everyone wish to put his own family in a safe community. Once we get jobs, secure jobs, the issue of affordable housing will go accordingly to our salaries. We do say in Swahili, tunataka kazi Um Jobs can resolve issues we have into our communities. 
and whether we can discuss of what can we do to you to get into a proper housing once you are on these social welfare it's a crisis there is nowhere else i've been traveling around melbourne there is no safe place to be on a social welfare with family even a single parent even a single person is not is not happy to discuss more broadly in reality we need more jobs for our community members to pay tax and to create opportunities for others thank you innocent um did you have anything to add to that yeah i think for me it just brought up such i mean it's such an amazing comment and i think something that i really believe in is that we look at housing as an isolated in issue and we look at housing in terms of sort of almost the economic um, barriers, the barriers around not enough available space in where people want to live. But yeah, it is fundamentally broader than that. It is about sort of social equity and access and being really cognitive of the fact that, yeah, certain people are marginalised and there's huge barriers in getting stable housing because they're facing such huge barriers in their careers. And so it's kind of like, yeah, sort of really addressing those sort of wider social issues. And I think that sometimes it feels like we're so sort of driven on the sort of more obvious planning policy responses to housing. Whereas, yeah, I think Innocent's comment was like really, really probably like one of the most pivotal things is that it's it's not actually the sort of technical affordability it's like well why are some people not able to afford it and that is about employment and so much of the reason why some people are challenged in terms of gaining higher professional jobs is around um social inequality so yeah um i think we were talking about this um before the um before this event but um, you know, we've spoken a bit about um, the role of the role of government in affordable housing, um, the role of the private sector, and what they um, can do in, in building new developments. Um, where do um, not for profits fall in this? Like, I know Innocent, you've you've had a lot of experience in terms of um, knowing what's out there, gaining access, pathways to information. As as someone who's newly arrived um, in, or who was newly arrived in the country. Um, what, what role do not-for-profits not play in all this and how much of that work um, should be the government's job? Um, Non-profit organisations, um, I wish we have many around the country because too many migrants or to, to normal Australians when you get a problem, there's nowhere else you go. In Australia, you just go to a local government service. And people like me, when I came to this country, I was looked after by uh, a non-profit organization. That was my starting point from the airport. They welcomed me into the country from the airport. They taught me how to use Australian dollar. It was my first time to hold a dollar in my hands. And they showed me how to use a public transport. So that, that beginning, uh, when you lose that beginning, there's nowhere else you can go. Um, by providing such, as, uh, such services like interpreting, uh, um, getting services, someone to translate for you, 
because you coming here you speaking Swahili or Kirundi or Rwandese or Congolese, um, Dinka or other, so many other languages. Um, <coughs> just by not speaking the English, it's another, it's another issue to ourselves. So when there is a non-profit organization did the research or a group of people coming into the country at a particular time, um, I wish government to keep funding and creating more non-profit organization so that we can have a safe community for all. And if Australia is welcoming everybody to come and share this beauty of this nation, I believe incredible services like the one I received in 2012 should be given to many migrants. Um, on that question of how, what should government do and what should not-for-profits do, that, that is a real debate, I think, and it's good to have a debate about it. Um, I think leaving um, housing to not-for-profits is, is neither fair nor going to work. <laughs> um, I think that um, many not-for-profits uh, manage housing extremely well. I think many not-for-profits can create some opportunities uh, to, to create small amounts of housing, but patently, for all the efforts, can't fill the gaps um, that, that are now emerging. And, you know, Bridie's graph before of the, the growing gaps um, it is pretty, pretty salutary, I think. Um, so I think what... And having worked in not-for-profits a long time myself, I think what not-for-profits do really well is that real human-level understanding and contact and navigating and interpreting in, in all sorts of actual ways, but also you know, what, what the policies and the opportunities are. And I think that that's really vital. Um, but when it comes to something, uh, you know, like every citizen, every person in Australia, not, not just citizens, but every person in Australia being adequately housed, it can't be left to not-for-profits, and that's where it gets a bit, uh, a bit alarming. Um, I wanted to shift the conversation slightly and ask about, um, I guess the implications of um, climate change, recent events um, like the horrendous bushfires uh, across this country on affordable housing, and if that's, um, in your experience, changed the conversation um, or the conditions? Um, not, not yet, <laughs> would be what I'd say. Um, I think it shifts money to somewhere else which might have been um, available for a few things. Uh, that, that's one thing that happens. Um, I think in all our minds, I think many of us are processing what it meant and what it might mean for us and, you know, how we need to think about um, uh, how we live in Australia and what we actually own, to, to your point, marvellous point earlier, Timmer, about that, you know, owning and, you know, possessing. Um, so I think it's going to have a lot of a lot of repercussions, but I don't think there's been much uh, thinking about that yet. It's all about response beginning to be recovery just from the immediate uh, extensive um, burns. That, that's all I've seen so far. Timmy, you were talking about that before the before we started. Did you have any thoughts? I feel like I keep asking you that, but don't feel like you have to. Uh, no, yeah. no. Sort of. It, I think that kind. I mean, all of the sort of the bigger, broader kind of crisis we were facing to me really touches into what we were talking about is the whole idea is that a housing issue and sort of shifting it and dealing with it is almost about this really deep challenge of addressing the impact of westernisation and capitalism 
So arguably we wouldn't be having fires or a climate crisis if we weren't living in a highly westernised capitalist society. But obviously it's not as if, you know, I was going to use the word decolonise, but I'm reluctant to use it because that is such a problematic, challenging, almost um, fanciful word. But the idea of kind of going, okay, we're here because of westernisation and capitalism and kind of some of the tensions around the desire for home ownership, but neatly addressing those giant, enormous, all-consuming systems are not in any way easy or even really possible at the moment. And, yeah, almost just like it's about like how do you start almost gently acknowledging the sort of challenging conditions that cause climate change and that then are obvious in the sort of sense that, well... Yeah, we need more houses, but the impact of development and are we going to make sure that as we increase development to deliver affordable housing, are we also going to make sure that we can maintain tree canopy and conserve the small pockets of natural environment in urban spaces to mitigate the impact that all the new housing is going to have on the environment? And can we unlock speculative properties before we build new properties too? Absolutely, yeah. Let's look at sort of vacancy rather than, you know, the need to sort of build, um, yeah, more apartments too, definitely. I was, yeah, one question, I feel like in having these discussions um, around housing, it often ends up in, in people concluding that, yeah, in this, in this current um, political system, our hands are tied to an extent and it's hard for anyone to imagine a world outside um, of this system. Um, but let me narrow it down a little bit um, and ask you all this. Um, can you imagine an Australia without commodified housing? Uh, no, it's <laughs> very hard to imagine. Um, well, I would just remark on that emergency, the bushfire. Um, you know, I'm not the only one to say this, but isn't it interesting the difference between the response to people whose home who lost their homes because they burnt down to people who've lost their homes for other reasons? Or you know, isn't that interesting? And um, you know, can't we mobilise when we want to? Um, isn't there you know interesting community resilience and community ability and feeling uh, that can be unlocked that way because that has been a real positive I think of the terrible things that have happened I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it but to see people um, come together and you know fight literally fight incredible life-threatening dangerous situations for for each other's houses um, I think that's an encouraging thing if there's something out of it Mm. um I always think about Australia and they compare to other countries I've lived in my life. And I always get to understand Australia when I'm outside, I'm outside Australia. I think it's a privilege to be inside Australia, especially discussions like this. It's happening elsewhere in many countries and the discussions are not allowed, are not in the public domain. So we should as well thank government for the the effort is making towards uh, what is needed in our local communities because so many other countries where I know uh, people are going through major other problems more than this. 
So Australia is doing well. Um, but when it comes to housing now, in we are in twenty first century in a first class world, and where we expect to be the first citizens of a country like Australia, um, what I can just say is to keep up uh, doing great things, uh, invest in people, and transform people, get more opportunities for people, and let we love our loved ones, the one who can't afford, the one who are disabled, the one who have other difficulties. And so many people got tired to get here. It's like a safe heaven. So let's not disappoint people who are lucky to be in this country. Thank you. Um, we're going to have some questions in just a moment. Um, I guess I wanted to finish up with a question um, about, because I'm unsure of what, what kind of an audience we have here today, but um, I guess for, for any non-experts and, and people who are just getting interested, um, who are interested in, in advocating for affordable housing for all, um, what do you all think are some of the best ways that um, people can go about this? Um, to influence, I mean, get, get yourself informed. Uh, influence your friends, your neighbours, your family. Um, if anyone knocks on your door seeking your vote in election time, tell them that it's an important issue to you. Um, you know, we can all do something about it in a small way, but we do need to insist, I think, uh, that the society of which we are a part uh, does something as a whole about this. So it's, it's at both those, um, both those levels of the sort of very personal, but also we are... Australia, you know, we are we we vote our governments in. Um, they are there to do what we send them to these various places to do. So so send them with some instructions. I'd say about um, about affordable housing, even if you're um, happen to be at this time well housed yourself, because I think there's a view that it's a, a big a minority and it's a silent minority who don't have much power. Um, that's not a wrong view. Um, so it needs other people who have got more more say um, to, to take this issue up to on behalf of, of each other, uh, to innocence um, point, I think. Mm. Thank you. Um, it all depends to who are the policymakers. Is it inclusive? Or uh, the problem, we translated the problem into academy that uh, a professor can resolve a problem from, for, of someone who is uh, coming from a refugee camp. Um, if we can include people at each level, regardless of their background, the level of education, they may pass on the message and they may get enough insights to what can be done and what needs to be done. But if we make one group of people to make policies on behalf of other peoples, there will be always a problem, regardless whether the policymakers were experts. We need to consider we are sharing a destination. And we, are, we came to this country at a different stage of life. Some came with no qualifications of hope of raising their children here. Others came here with qualifications, and even those qualifications are not considered. There's an issue of overseas qualification within Australian communities. Many doctors from overseas, many engineers, many nurses, 
when they reach here, they find it very difficult to practice and they have to go back to school. That create issues towards their, fam their own families. But what needs to be done is a discussion into the community, go into the community, listen to those community voices. People, they need a representation. And that representation can be created. But when you look at each job's advertised, they are looking for someone with seven years experience, two years minimum experience. And you are here in Australia two hours, and you need to pay rent in next two weeks. What, do, what police will protect you within two weeks? Look how the policies are made. There's no policy someone within two weeks will, will be given a protection or uh, will be able to apply a job without a CV. Those are the issues we have inside the communities. And people are going through hard times because we don't understand where the policies even are made. Some of us, we saw televisions here. Back home, we didn't have electricity. We didn't have televisions. So when you come and tell us that there's a policymakers who are protecting us, we didn't even hear through televisions. Went to the news, we put our own CDs, we watch our own movies back from Africa. That's what we understand. So it's up to the government to protect each group of people they know where they get it from. And they believe that these people will get their future here through policy makers because it's only through policy. If we don't have inclusive policy, we always have problems into our community. There will be someone who is suffering because his voice, his needs was not being part of the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I really just sort of echo what you were saying, Innocent. I think for me, what I sort of have found as a real challenge um, is that the industry and sort of my experience working in sort of different urban planning roles is that everybody who has decision-making power, people in senior roles, management roles, it seems to be an overwhelmingly white industry. And I think it's not appropriate to have a very sort of white, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-class, upper-middle-class people making all of these really crucial decisions purely because they don't have the lived experience of the diverse communities they're attempting to plan for. And, and that's probably why it's such that there's a sense of like not understanding the experience of newly arrived people and how hard it is for them to get housing because it's just not the experience of those people and yeah really sort of creating the pathways and really sort of almost shifting power structures in terms of who is always in the leadership roles in these industries and that's I mean it's huge again that's something that kind of unfortunately feels almost intergenerational to get that change but I think there is a real problem in the sort of well my experience in kind of like different roles in this sort of sector is it's it's very rare when you come across someone from a different kind of sort of class racial um gender diverse sort of sexuality backgrounds it tends to be a certain type of person and I don't think it's always a great model for those people to be the decision makers. I think sort of more broadly speaking, I think it's really important for sort of what I really learned from you, which was really great um, when we met up, is sort of that ability to sort of 
learn and understand our rights a little bit more, which is something I sort of don't and haven't really thought about, renters' rights and all those sorts of issues more. And, yeah, I mean, it's hard in terms of what people's backgrounds are, but that ability to get more involved in advocacy and lobbying and sort of really push for change. And I agree what you said about sort of, you know, we tend to mobilise in certain crises and not other crises. And I don't know, I think it sort of feels there's certain crises that are really appealing and that sounds kind of sort of crass, but it does feel like certain crises appeal to people and everyone can suddenly raise 60 million billion dollars and then other crises like homelessness and housing isn't seen as appealing or interesting and we can't mobilise and put our um, money and contribute in that way. So I think... Yeah, that sort of trying to think about why it is that certain human crisis and challenge appeals to us and we'll donate our our money and time to and then others don't and sort of think about if we all rallied together around housing, well, maybe we would be doing something quite amazing if people could raise millions of dollars really quickly for other causes. I couldn't agree more. Um... I think we're going to um, have about 10 minutes of questions now, but um, before we do that, if you could just give our three speakers a big round of applause. Um, So I think we're going to pass around a mic, and if you could just talk right into it, that would be good. Hello, good evening, and thanks a lot for the conversation. It was really interesting. Um, I have a couple of questions. One is uh, up to which point... So it is fairly common for apartments inside the city to be shared uh, between students from overseas. Uh, Let's say that they usually share a bedroom between two to four people, and it makes it affordable for them to live here. So up to which point you share that thought that it is affordable, uh, good living, and also if you think that it might be deviating the stats about how people can, like how many people can really live in a good place or... Uh, the other question was related with the with the bushfires. There was quite a lot of money that was raised uh, to the uh, Red Cross or to other foundations that, in the end, is not going to the hands of the people that lost their houses, even though many of the people that did donations thought that they were going to help rebuilding the houses. So what's your thought about it also? Thank you. Uh, I want to talk about the overcrowded um, conditions with for students, um, particularly. I am very concerned about this. I think it's very widespread, and you sound like you know what you're talking about. Um, we have many, many thousands, tens of thousands of students uh, in Victoria, but particularly Melbourne, at any one time, and I don't think there's good um, arrangements allowed made for them. 
And so, uh, like Innocent so well described, you come to the country without references or knowing how the system works, and you end up paying a similar amount to what you could pay for a decent um, a share house uh, where you have a bedroom of your own. And um, I, I am very concerned about the exploitation, as I see it, that's going on there. I think it's creating very dangerous situations for too many people, and I hate to see that sort of... Um, you know, there's some people getting pretty rich off that, actually. Um, so I'm working across several areas at, at the moment, within the city of Melbourne particularly, which I understand is where the situation is the worst. Um, the powers that... Because they are essentially rooming houses in the... in the, But they're um, behind uh, big doors uh, that the local council inspectors can't easily get in through to have a look or see from the street that something untoward is, is happening there and they need to... So, so there are some laws that cover it, but not properly. Uh, and then the, the, the students are not being assisted by the edu educational institutions that are attracting them here enough um, to know what their options are. And sometimes people are pretending to be your friend. Um, I will sort out your housing for you. Just give me this money. Um, it's no good. Yeah, so it's something that I'm quite concerned about and we're working on um, with several areas of government at the moment, but there's a long way to go to, to fix it. Um, I might, might leave it at that. Um, someone else might want to talk about the other part of your question or even that one. Hi there, my name's Jen and I'm interested in tiny houses. Um, you probably know that the tiny house movement is um, increasing, but what I'm finding in trying to build one of my own is there's not a lot of understanding from councils about how to better work in with tiny houses and the benefit that that is to our society in terms of being more sustainable. What do you think about that? Opportunities and threats? Uh, I, th I think it's an opportunity. I think, um, I think you know, it'll take a while probably for councils to catch up with it. Um, it does seem to be a real groundswell, though. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, being able to use small uh, parts of, pieces of land or share land with other people, it, it's really good. It's really productive. And if people are saying, I want to do this myself, I want to live here, um, then, uh, you know, I hope that uh, councils and planning laws can, can catch up reasonably quickly. Yeah, would be my take. Yeah. I just wanted to ask a question about the public housing land, particularly in inner city Melbourne, highly valuable, which is being hocked off by our government. Uh, that land is an asset that was achieved by previous generations, which is now being flogged off um, and in, replaced with a very small number of public housing as part of uh, developments. And it's really um, a deficit to the public asset base. What can be done to stop this? Uh, look, I'm not, I'm not working in that specific area at the moment, so I'm not actually really current with it. I do agree with you that it's um, th these are community assets that have been, that took a lot to win at, at the time. Um, I would also observe that one of the big problems has been that national and state governments over 
50, 60 years haven't put enough into the upkeep, so many of the properties are in very poor condition for people to live in. Some are fine, but many aren't fine, um, and that that's a big ticket problem that it seems um, mainly the state government is trying to face. Um, and one of the things in the that I do like about the City of Melbourne um, strategy is that they're talking about all levels of government who have things to do working together on this. When, when others step back and just leave one level to, to try to fund and, and do something, you get these sort of situations. Mm. I'd just like to uh, refer to the tiny house project, which I think is fantastic. Um, but there are other areas of creativity in urban design, in architecture and so on, which could produce very efficient um, suburban housing. I don't believe local government want to see this sort of creativity and different types of housing. I think that, in essence, local government don't want affordable housing. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was more of a statement, but just to echo that, yeah, I think creative solutions should be celebrated and really, really encouraged. Like you were saying it again, and I think sometimes it's just a frustration that government can be slow and therefore appear to be disinterested. But Maybe it is about working out ways that you can sort of independently keep pushing by demanding. And if enough people are demanding creative solutions, whether it's tiny houses or just really innovative, unusual ways, then that it's almost like don't wait for government. Just do it and demand it in a way. I just want to check if anyone in the back of the room has a question. I'm aware that we've had quite a few from down the front. Anyone? Back to the front. Any questions up here? Oh, sorry, let me get around. Uh, thank you all. It's been really great listening to, um, to all your comments this evening. Um, one question I have, what are the pros and the cons of the NRAFs? Because I remember seeing um, a property investment program a few years ago, but um, people were going to New Zealand and buying one and two and three houses because it, they were assured that the government, it would be a secure investment for them, even though the return was lower. But it was a long-term investment. They were happy with that. They could walk away, forget about it, except maintenance, etc. And it gave housing to the local people. So what... What is actually happening with the NRAS in, in Australia at the moment? Because I actually thought it was a good model. I don't know. Again, I'm not completely current. NRAS is the National Rental Affordability Scheme. Uh, it's an, a national um, program uh, that um, encouraged owners, uh, purchasers to buy a property um, and rent it at, I think it was 75% of market rent. Um, over a 10-year period, and then you've got a tax concession for 10 years to do that. These are coming up to expiry now, um, and so a number of them are, will be you know, flipping over into, I don't know, either the owners might sell them. Um, they had to rent them, obviously. Um, so, so there's really been no, as far as I can understand, transition plan um, out of that, and there's quite a few thousand of those properties. Um, but it's an example, I suppose, of why we need real long-term um, 
bipartisan sort of policy around housing. Otherwise, people get exposed to those, those sort of, um, you know, changes of mind, I suppose, um, by governments when governments change. That's, that's all I could say about it at this stage. Um, I thought that we were going to get through the entire session without mentioning the responsibility of the state government. Um, and I suppose it's better that it was thrown in as a, an afterthought than completely ignored. Uh, Credit Suisse ranks Australia as the wealthiest country on the planet in terms of median wealth. And Melbourne is certainly one of the wealthiest cities in that country. And for me, I've been in the Labor Party for 50 years. And for me, seeing homeless people on the street in a Labor government in its second term is a, just an ongoing obscenity. Thank you. Um, and in relation to the city of Melbourne, if education got to the same state, as housing, would the City of Melbourne decide to open schools? I mean, if, and if health got to the same state as housing, would the City of Melbourne open hospitals? So that's a question for the City of Melbourne. Um, if I could ask two questions. The first one is for Tamara. Um, you talked before about how there's very specific demographics in planning and how that leads to a specific worldview. Do you think that something like participatory planning or a more um, community consultation focus would help with that? Um, and while you're thinking of your answer, the other one's for Dr Holst. Um, you said right at the start that there was a time when we didn't really have this problem in Australia. Um, could you describe the sorts of approaches that led to us fixing it before? Thanks. Yeah, I would 100% agree some sort of participatory planning or citizen jury approach. I would stay away from the more community consultation because I think that's very varied in what it can achieve. And I think as anyone who works for government would just know that it's a challenge both for someone trying to engage with communities and also the communities who constantly feel over-engaged and almost fed up with sort of seeing their views be properly adopted. But, yeah, I mean, there's been lots of discussions around some sort of, yeah, sort of more powerful participatory citizen jury where people from all different backgrounds would actually have some sort of an informed decision-making contribution. I think that would be really fantastic. Um, I was referring to a time when, uh, when this got fixed last time, and that was actually post-Second World War, um, over 50% of people were renting. Um, Australia had been through the 1930s depression when there was, you know, ter terrible poverty um, and had to face a lot of soldiers coming back uh, with nowhere proper to live. Um, and it was a national-led um, kind of plan that drew in all the states and territories. But it was, it was a nationally-led reconstruction that was explicit about the need to have housing underpinning and it uh, so so that's the first thing I suppose that it was was very much a joint effort with real leadership 
um, and it had things like, um, uh, you know, that's when public housing got built, really, that only been a little bit built. It also was when enormous numbers of people got access to very, very low interest loans um, to, to build their own or buy um, property. Um, and it was a, really a sort of a, an effort that was thought about across, uh, across Australia. There were some pretty spectacular exclusions, like Aboriginal Australians, for example. Um, uh, but, you know, and, and with uh, migrants coming to the country, like Innocent um, describes, there was uh, thinking about where they would settle, what the housing was that they would settle in. So, so you know, we're a long way from that sort of country. We're a different, we're a different country now, but um, other uh, large, uh, you know, I suppose sophisticated countries have undertaken those sort of planning exercises more recently, and I think until um, that's, there's a step forward into that, we're, we're going to flounder. I think that's uh, about all the time we have uh, for questions. Um, just a quick reminder that if you want to um, stick around, I believe there will be a few um, City of Melbourne representatives. If you want to find out more about um, the draft affordable housing strategy and talk about that, um, you're welcome to stick around um, after this. Otherwise, you can log on to Participate Melbourne Wednesday week. And sorry, I don't know actually where I'm looking. <laughs> um, uh, and have your say there. Um, but yeah, can I get one more uh, big round of applause for our panellists? Thanks for listening to this Melbourne Conversations podcast. To find out more, visit melbourne.vic.gov.au slash Melbourne Conversations.